every week, uh, a part of the Blessed Battle series that we're in, we're doing a reading of scripture throughout, through the whole uh, section of Beatitudes. And so this morning, Maris is going to uh, read through the Beatitudes for us, and then Ben is bringing the message. Good morning, everybody. This is from the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Maris. Thank you. Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, my name's Ben, one of the pastors here as well. And like Josh said, if I've not met you, I would love to meet you as well. So today, the beatitude we're on in our series, The Blessed Battle, which of course is uh, recognition that we're in a spiritual battle. And so we look to Jesus for how do we engage and how do we live in light of of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. So the, the beatitude for today is blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So let's talk about this word pure. What comes to mind when you hear the word pure? For me, uh, I quickly think of pure honey, right? It's very good. There's no blemishes. There's nothing in that honey is just pure, straight up honey. Maybe you can envision, you know, uh, that, that bread with some thick layer of butter in the honey, and it's just like, mmm, pure honey. Or maybe you think of pure gold. That might maybe comes to mind. Uh, I learned as I was looking into this that actually you, you cannot attain 100% purity uh, with gold. So anything above 99.95% counts as pure gold. And it would be nice to have some pure gold in the bank right now, right? Uh, the word pure in this original language in our text here in Greek, it's, it's essentially equivalent to clean. So pure or clean, they can be used interchangeably. In fact, uh, many places in the New Testament where that word is, the word clean is used. And it, it has to do with this idea of uh, pure gold, where it's not mixed with anything. Like it's just completely Pure. There's no admixture of any impurity or anything to make it dirty or unclean. So that's what, that's what the word is. You know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The other thing that came to my mind very quickly when I read this passage in light of knowing that I was going to preach on it was purity culture. Is anyone uh, familiar with the phrase purity culture? Okay. So you might be able to imagine what purity culture is in a general sense, just by thinking about those words. 
But purity culture is actually uh, refers to a specific time, a specific subculture within Christendom. Um, it's defined, uh, one way to define it is uh, purity culture is the term often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity balls. Maybe like where a father and a daughter would go to a purity ball and talk about abstaining from intercourse before marriage. Now, I I actually didn't know about the purity ball thing, but I knew very much about the purity pledges and the symbols like purity rings. So this purity culture uh, existed at its heightened form in the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, this purity culture has had a huge impact, not just on church, people that aspired to follow up or live up to it, but also those uh, that were damaged by the impacts of the church uh, with this this, uh, purity culture that developed. Now, if we get a little more granular, there's a lot of this, yeah, we're we're gonna really uh, take some time to consider the impact of purity culture and what it might have to to do with this this passage, if, if that's something that came to your mind as well. So sort of the, the organization that really embodied and really promoted this, uh, this purity culture at the time was called True Love Waits. Has anyone heard of True Love, the True Love Waits campaign? A few of you. Okay, so track with me. So I'm 41 years old, so I was coming of age right at the, the thrust of this True Love Waits campaign. So True Love Waits is an international cr- Christian group that promotes sexual abstinence outside of marriage for teenagers and college students. It was created in uh, 1993 by the Southern Baptists and sponsored by their printing or uh, their um, press, the Lifeway Christian Resources. So track with me here a little bit. This is, this is an attempt by the Southern Baptists to really push Christian purity into the culture. So in the first year of the campaign, over 100,000 young people signed the pledge, and then this was taken up by other church groups, including the Roman Catholic Church and Assemblies of God. So believe it or not, I was an early adopter of the True Love Waits campaign, and I still have the card. There you go. You guys woke up all of a sudden. Uh, especially those that are familiar with the True Love Waits campaign in, in purity culture. So I signed this pledge on September 4th, 1994, when I was just 13 years old. I, I did not know exactly what was happening in the subculture of Christianity and the impact it would have on me personally, but also the church, the culture at large. So by 2004, so 10 years later, uh, groups supporting abstinence numbered in the hundreds. This really caught some steam. During the preceding decade, about two and a half million American youth took the pledge of abstinence. And I, as I've, I've been listening to podcasts, reading about this phenomenon, one, because I'm a, a church leader in a time when there's a lot of cultural challenges, a lot of stuff hitting the fan, a lot going on, and so I want to understand what has impacted that, but also I, too, am walking with Jesus and trying to make sense of my religious uh, upbringing and the impact that that had on me personally. 
And everything I've read and the podcasts I've listened to are really getting at my experience back then and there, almost 30 years ago. So the messaging at these youth rallies was you're either pure or impure. You're either 100% pure, right? Like that's what pure is, 100% clean. Or if there's some defect or some, some uh, you know, if you've had sex before marriage, you're impure. That was the messaging. Two of the analogies that I remember being used um, was the, the, uh, the chewed gum analogy. So we'd sit there and the speaker would say, hey, you chew gum and you hand it to someone and you say, hey, you wanna chew this gum as well? And you're like, no, that, chew, that gum's already been chewed. Why would I do that? And then the message was, well, if you have sex before marriage, you are chewed gum and no one wants you. That, that's the messaging that I sat under as a 13-year-old in, in church gatherings. And of course, this messaging was most clearly directed at the women in the group. The other analogy was like the damaged flower analogy, you know, where you hand around a, a flower and, hey, everyone pick a petal, and by the time it gets to the end, it's just, it's hanging over, it, it looks terrible, there's no more petals, and you're like, hey, is the flower beautiful anymore? Does anyone want this flower? No. It's just used goods, damaged goods. And that's what you'll be like if you have sex before marriage, kids. Whoa. Wow. Okay. This movement caught steam in the 90s, early 20s, or 2000s. I, I resonated as I read about the different strict rules that accompanied this movement. Um, side hugs only. So you're trying to figure out how do you navigate relationships like Never be alone with a girl, you know, modesty dress codes. Looking back on the experience, um, it reminds me a lot, uh, actually, as I've grown up, I've had a lot of interaction with Islamic culture and with Muslims and thought about the way that women are treated in Islamic culture. And it, it reminds me a lot of that, where you're, they're forcing women to cover their bodies and cover their heads because the burden is on women to make sure that men don't stumble or lust or, you know, because men can't control themselves. So that's the, 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 the purity culture, at least, that I grew up in. And I don't know if um, some of this may resonate with some of you, but the rest of you, I want you to imagine that um, shaping a whole culture of people that grew up in the church for trying to do the right thing. And then even into college, so the, the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, anyone read that one? Okay, few of us, few of us. So that was a huge book for me. It, it came out in 1997, it was a few, few years after I had signed this. And um, as I've read about this book, some suggest the book promoted condemnation and shame among young women in the True Love Waits movement. The book's been characterized as portraying ideal young Christian women as, women as sexually passive, emotional, patient, and discouraging young Christian men from forming relationships with women. I mean, that's complete. I read that book and I didn't know how. I guess I'm not gonna relate to, to, to other women, you know? And Christian psychologists Henry Cloud and, and John Townsend, they're the ones who wrote Boundaries. They suggest that avoiding dating in order to avoid suffering, as Harris advises, causes those who do so to forego opportunities to mature, especially through learning how to create healthy boundaries. So when I look back, I resonate with that. Like, wow, I really struggled to mature in relating in a healthy way with women. 
Of course, and some of you may know this, that uh, just a few years ago, Joshua Harris, this author, actually separated from his wife in 2019 and announced he no longer considers himself a Christian, completely denounced. And now his work is to try to help people who were impacted negatively by his work to come through. And for him, it's actually helping them deconstruct their faith without really reconstructing it. I was reading an article, uh, actually a British article, called The Impact of Christian Purity Culture Still Being Felt, Including in Britain, um, on this website called The Conversation. And this one paragraph really captured uh, my experience looking back. It says, The permeation of purity culture into church teachings and cultures can be seen in anxieties around male-female friendships. So if Billy Graham says, you know, I'm never going to be alone with a woman ever, and he's the bastion of, of evangelicalism, then what does that mean for a young, young man growing up? Like, I, I, you know, so there's anxiety around those relationships, uh, anxieties around relationship expectations, the Christian idolization of marriage. The whole goal in life is to re- keep pure until you get married, and then it's, it's just amazing. But what if you never get married, Right? The equating of virginity with value, huge deal, and inferences that women are responsible for gatekeeping men's sexual behavior. Even later in college, and this is a little more funny, but as I look back on it, I'm like, wow, this, this was the culture in which I, my relationship with Christ was really formed. I have a lot to really process through and work through personally. And then as I think about church culture that we want to establish. So in, in a, my collegiate ministry was called The Navigators, a great collegiate ministry. I still love The Navigators. It's awesome. So when we think back on the challenges of our upbringing, um, we, we don't just denigrate everything, but we're, we're honest about the challenges that come with it. So still love The Navigators. But we were known at that time um, where I was involved at The Navigators as a navigator, never daters. That's what we were known as, navigator, never daters. And I lived up to that for the most part, for the most part, right? There's, you know. Um, but later, I, I actually, so Maris is, was involved with the Crusaders, which is now called Campus Crew. And we were at, a, I was at a, um, a leadership thing years ago, and I overheard a navigator leader talking with a crusader leader. And they used that phrase. They said, oh yeah, the navigator never daters unless they date a crusader. I was like, wow, I am the quintessential picture of purity culture coming up from 13 years old all the way up through college. It was kind of funny, but it said a lot. So purity culture made big promises. And as I've looked back on it, I think it was a form of the prosperity gospel. It says this, if you keep your body pure in this specific way, no intercourse before marriage, You'll be rewarded with amazing and abundant sex for the rest of your married life. Or another way to put it, blessed are those who remain pure, for they will be in good standing with God and receive a life of great sex once married. Stick with me. <laughs> I hope you're following this, this, uh, this purity culture, kind of this movement and... and how it's developed. So purity culture, though, let's really think about this, has major problems. First of all, think about this. External behavioral conformity. 
to get a group of young people to externally uh, conform, let's all sign the pledge, it breeds hidden sin and produces shame and doesn't get to the heart. External behavioral conformity breeds hidden sin and produces shame and it doesn't get to the heart. Purity culture produced a religious environment of hidden sin and hidden hearts. Think about that. Hidden sin and hidden hearts. And the fact of the matter is, it just didn't work and it doesn't work. There's a study by the American Academy of Pediatrics released in in, uh, 2009 where they studied the pledgers, people like myself, true love weights pledgers, people who signed virginity pledges. And listen to a little bit of these stats. Five years after the pledge, 82% of pledgers denied having ever pledged. I didn't sign that thing. What are you talking about? 82% of that two and a half million and whatever other stats are out there of pledgers. Pledgers and matched non-pledgers did not differ in premarital sex, sexually transmitted diseases, and anal and oral sex variables. No difference in the actual behaviors that occurred from the pledgers versus the non-pledgers. The sexual behavior of virginity pledgers does not differ from that of closely matched non-pledgers, and pledgers are less likely to protect themselves from pregnancy and disease before marriage. Virginity pledges may not affect sexual behavior, but may decrease the likelihood of taking precautions during sex. So they, they encourage clinicians should provide birth control information to all adolescents, especially the virginity pledgers because they want to look good on the outside, but the, re, the, the inside's not being dealt with. The behaviors, what's happening behind closed doors, aren't being dealt with. So as we're going, I want you to know, dear friends, I am committed, and our church is committed to God's design for human flourishing, including our sexuality. We are committed to that. We are committed to purity, But the reality is that we all fall far short of that optimal design, and we need to be honest about it. The question really is, what is our motivation and our means for moving towards human flourishing? How how do we form ourselves spiritually to move towards God's best for us? Is it law or is it grace? You know, is it external behavioral conformity? Make sure we all say and say the right thing and, and have the right uh, gestures externally? Or is it addressing the heart, the internal matters? Not to belabor this, aka to belabor this. <laughs> Remember True Love Waits was dreamed up by the Southern Baptists. And I've been a Southern Baptist before and a lot of good work there, but we need to be honest, right, about our histories and about our, mis- our shortcomings. They dreamed this thing up, right, in the, 90s, in the early 90s. Meanwhile, at the very same time, there was sexual scandal after sexual scandal that was being completely covered up. Talk about the height of hypocrisy in the religious leadership that is shaping our culture when it comes to faith. So just a couple, and you could find stat after stat, but this is from uh, the Washington Post uh, not long ago, May 2022. 
The findings of nearly 300 pages include shocking new details. This is about the SBC uh, scandal, the cover-up of all these sexual abuse cases. New details about specific abuse cases and shine a light on how denominational leaders for decades actively resisted calls for abuse prevention and reform. Evidence in the report suggests leaders also lied to Southern Baptists over whether they could maintain a database of offenders to prevent more abuse when top leaders were secretly keeping a private list for years. Meanwhile, let's get the kids to sign the pledge, right? The investigation finds that for almost two decades, survivors of abuse and other concerned Southern Baptists have been in contacting the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention's administrative arm, to report alleged child molesters and other accused abusers who were in the pulpit or employed as church staff members. Many of the cases referred to in the report were considered outside the statute of limitations, the time survivors can report sex abuse, so it's unclear how many abusers were criminally charged. Let's just wait this thing out so we have no legal repercussion, right? And just one person's story. I knew it was rotten, but it's astonishing and infuriating, said Jennifer Lyle, a survivor who was once the highest paid female exec at the SBC and whose story of sexual abuse at a Southern Baptist seminary is detailed in the report. This is a denomination that is through and through about power, misappropriated power, it does not in any way reflect the Jesus I see in the scriptures. I am so gutted. Now, not to throw, just to throw more stones at the SBC, but to get at what is shaping the hearts and minds of, of people saying they follow Christ in our culture and what has shaped the hearts and minds for decades. This is tough stuff. No wonder people struggle to want to show up at a church and want to you know, be vulnerable and share their, their issues and seek healing in the church when this kind of stuff is what's the reality. So we could ask the question, is, is purity culture biblical? Um, you know, I think about what, what would the, the, the purity culture that I just described, what would the impact be on someone like the woman at the well? She would get that messaging, but yet Jesus identified like she was not pure. Where's the space for her? Or the woman caught in adultery? Or King David? Or King Solomon? Or anyone in the scriptures? It doesn't work for anyone in the scriptures. So I rather, I would love to, to, to look at how Jesus interacted with these women, with these men, who purity culture would have completely discarded as chewed gum or worn out flour. I think we want to become like Jesus in the way he related to people who weren't pure. And we want to experience Jesus relating to us, to me, in the way he related to people who weren't pure. But don't think that Jesus lowered the standard. This is really important. Think about this. In the context of our Beatitudes in Matthew 5, a few verses after the, the, the one about blessed are the pure in heart, listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. 
Therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That that sounds tough. What is happening here? He has this captive audience. He's got the religious leaders. He's got people like the woman at the well, like the woman caught in adultery, lepers. He's got all these people gathered. And he says, the standards are much higher than you thought, actually. And then he goes on. He said, you've heard it said long ago, don't murder. But I tell you, if you even have anger in your heart and act out towards your brother, it's like murder. And he goes on, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, even if in your heart you lust, have lustful intent after your sister or brother, you've committed adultery. He ratchets up the requirement for purity. And he says of the religious leaders, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Like when I clean this water bottle, I focus on cleaning the inside where all the, you know, grime and nastiness is. I just briefly hit the exterior. Because the important thing is it actually being clean, you know, and hygienic. And he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So religious leaders, I was thinking about this. Uh, remember when hand sanitizer was like, cost, like, like gold, pure gold? Couldn't find it, price gouging. And we have this pandemic, and we're just throwing hand sanitizer at it, Right? Like, let me get clean, let me, get, let me be clean, let me be clean. But it, it didn't solve the issue, it didn't do anything, right? Well, if people think that the hand sanitizer is gonna solve the issue, and I have all the hand sanitizer, I have a lot of power and control, and I can make a lot of money. And that's what's happening here. The religious leaders, people thought they had what they needed to be in right standing with God and to grow and mature. But what they had was just accounted to hand sanitizer, right? I mean, if used within its proper context, we need it a little bit, you know. When I get a little honey on my hand and I, I use the hand sanitizer, clean it up, but it doesn't solve the problem. So Jesus had to hold the line on what good living truly was to try to get through to these religious leaders. He had a captive audience with the, the hurt, those who were stuck in their sin and it was really clear, the lepers, because they understood they couldn't do it. They were poor in spirit. So they were entering the kingdom, but he had to get through to the heart of these religious leaders. So Jesus simultaneously throws everyone under the bus. No one hears the Sermon on the Mount and walks away and is like, I think I'm good to go. I think I, you know, I followed through on the purity culture thing that needed to happen. So I'm in good standing with God and on my path to healthy relationships. Everyone is thrown under the bus, but yet then he immediately provides a means to become clean in himself, and that takes some time in the Gospels to develop, but not only a a pathway to be clean, but a pathway towards feeling clean, 
towards experiencing the cleanliness that he has given. And if you know the story, Jesus, he lives this, this perfect life. Like he, he fulfilled that law. He internally and externally walked flawlessly with God. He lived the life that we could never live. And then he paid for our failure to fulfill the law on the cross. And then paved the way for us to experience power for healing by rising from the dead. So he shows us that optimal path for human flourishing while demonstrating that every single person needs help moving that direction. So we've, we, we learn in scriptures that uh, God looks at the, the heart, we look at the exterior. There's this passage in James where James, uh, writing to some early followers of Christ, some Jewish followers of Christ, he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, double-minded kind of gets at that hypocrisy thing. There needs to be congruence between what I say I am and what I'm putting out externally and who I am internally. But when I read this, I think, James, I don't know how to purify my heart, man. I, I, uh, I read about the SBC scandals. I read about the Pharisees, and I can kind of distance myself from that. But when I really look at my own heart, it's often not good. I may see some of those dead men's bones in there. I may see the incongruence with my external behaviors, what I put out uh, here, and what's happening on the inside. So what if I feel like those Pharisees who are filled with unclean things? What do I do with that? And here's where we come to our response to the word of God this morning. So follow the flow of this Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been here for a while, we've, been, we've kind of been riffing on this uh, for several weeks now. So these Beatitudes give way to the Sermon on the Mount, which I just referenced some of that, where Jesus is showing the way to live in the kingdom, but ratcheting up those standards for righteousness and healthy living. Um, and righteousness, just a big word for relational right standing. Think of it that way. And it, comes, it goes from uh, Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. And then when we turn the page to Matthew 8, we have this amazing first story right after this Sermon on the Mount. Where, where a man comes to Jesus to become clean. He recognizes, he's heard this whole thing, he's like, I can't do it. There's, there's, I'm helpless to do what you just said. And so he comes to Jesus. Listen, listen to this, this is the story of the leper. So when Jesus came down from the mountainside, Large crowds are following him. Something about Jesus is winsome, even as he is just, this is like telling you guys, y'all failed. You guys are all, you know, it's terrible. And they're just following him. They want more. They want, there's something about him that they know he has the words of life. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Now, leprosy, this man uh, was unclean. And he, wore, he had to wear it like a badge. I mean, a lot of us, you know, in, in our culture, we don't know, we don't see the shame. We don't carry it in the same way that this man, this man literally had to go around shouting, unclean, 
unclean, letting everyone know, I am dirty, I am unclean, don't touch me, I cannot be in relationship with you. Community was closed off to him. Relationship with God was closed off to him. He couldn't even go to the temple. He was essentially the walking dead, right? And he hears Jesus, and he comes to him, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out, and what does Jesus do? He breaks the law. I mean, Jesus is above the law. The law says, don't touch this guy, or you'll be unclean. And Jesus is like, I I am fulfilling the entire law. I will create human flourishing. And he reaches out. And think about being touched by Jesus after having never been touched by a human being for ever since this, um, he had leprosy. Jesus touches him and his, he is immediately cleansed. He's clean from that point forward, but yet he has a long way to go to feel clean and to, fee, and to be in healthy human relationships. That touch from Jesus is just the beginning of a journey. So our first step is we come to Jesus to become clean, to merely ask him to help us become clean and he will respond. King David, another story um, in the Old Testament, after he realized, and, and think about King David, if you know the story, he committed adultery with Bathsheba then had her husband killed. It was a story of sexual infidelity and murder. And he didn't even realize what he did was bad. His, he wasn't even conscious stricken until the prophet Nathan pointed it out. And then David is just broken. And he says this in his reflection in chapter 51 of Psalm. The Psalms, cleanse me with hyssop, like scrub me down, clean me up and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He couldn't do it himself. He needed God to clean him up. Or the disciples, um, in, in John speaks to them. He says, I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Same root word as clean or pure. He cleans up. He is the one who is pruning and cleaning us so that we can become more fruitful. A couple more passages And you can just tuck these away. Maybe there's one key passage that sticks out to you that you can focus on. In the Jerusalem Council, uh, so in the the early church, when the, the early church fathers are making these decisions about the communication of this good news, and here's Peter speaking. He says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts as well by faith. And Paul's reflection to Titus. The grace of God has appeared, offers salvation to all. And what does a grace do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, from all of our impurities, all of our trash, our, our unrighteousness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, 
eager to do what is good. So we want to be a church. You know, tall grass at the well and this, this next, as we, as we launch a new work, as the action team has worked and, and we settle on our, our vision and values and who we are, we want to be a church where people can come and to Jesus and get clean, right? And to feel clean. We want to be a place where people who didn't keep their pledges and promises, or maybe they didn't even make pledges and promises, and they just lived however they wanted, they can come here and be restored to relationships with God, relationship with God, a place where people can develop healthy relationships between men and women, healthy marriages, healthy relationships for those who are single. Jesus does the heavy lifting. He does the lion's share of the work, but we also have work to do. So number two, we're to come to one another for foot washing. And as I uh, shared this point, I'll invite the worship team to come up. Stick with me on this. Jesus, at the, at the, the Last Supper, it says in, in John 13 that he gets up from the meal, and you might remember this story, he, he takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel, right? He comes to Simon Peter, and Peter, bless his heart, Peter's like, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Remember what Peter said? Well, if you're gonna wash my feet, wash my whole body. He's like, he wants all of it. And this is what Jesus says to him. Those who've had a bath already need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. And when he had finished washing, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you. So this foot washing is not just serving one another. It is reminding one another that we are clean because of the gospel. In James, uh, he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. So we have a role to play in each other's healing in reminding people that you are forgiven because of the, the gospel. You are clean because of the gospel. Now let's live into that. So we have a role to play in washing one another's feet. And then finally, come into the presence of God. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So we may not be able to see God physically yet, but we have full access to come into his presence together. I invite you all to stand up. One last passage. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Maybe just close your eyes as I, as I read this passage over us. Therefore, this is Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. 
let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day of your return approaching. Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you that Christ has made a way where there was no way for us to be pure in heart and to see you. I pray for any who are in here who are hurting and broken or overwhelmed by the weight of their sin. Father, we know Jesus is calling us. He's calling us to your open wide arms to receive your forgiveness through the precious blood of Christ. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.